0: Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by the Alabama Literacy Alliance, an Alabama nonprofit, which is hosting the Alabama Reading Summit February the 24th at the Clanton Conference and Performing Arts Center. This is a networking event for those working with literacy in the state to come together and learn from one another. For more information and registration, go to alabamaliteracyalliance.org. I'm your host, Shelley Bell-Smith. Today, we will be talking to Erin Silcox. Erin is working on her PhD in literacy education at the University of Wyoming, where she focuses on the intersection of trauma and literacy. One of her goals is to deepen the base of knowledge about trauma-informed practices in schools and help teachers apply findings into the classroom. Erin has a website and blog for trauma-informed teachers, where she translates the research on this subject into practical wisdom for those who work with students affected by trauma. Welcome Erin, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Can you start by telling us how you became involved in the area of trauma-informed literacy? Yeah, for
1: sure. My formative educational experiences included working as a teacher and a principal at a residential treatment center, and our students were predominantly affected by early, ongoing interpersonal traumas that impacted their lives in in really significant ways. One of those ways was their uh, literacy achievement. There's a lot behind that. I don't need to go into that right now, but their challenges in literacy linked to trauma were somewhat alleviated when I was working on my master's degree in teaching science. I was also earning a literacy endorsement, and I was expanding my own definition of literacy and getting really creative with what counted as literacy instruction, assessment and then student activities. What was I expecting them to do when we were engaging with reading and writing? And what did I consider to be reading and what was writing in my classroom? And it really, I really like the word expanded because expanding my definition of literacy expanded their opportunities to engage with literacy. And I just saw some really dramatic improvements in their classroom experiences and also we do at, at the residential tree. I say we do because I'm going to do my dissertation there, hopefully in like a month or two, but we do intake and discharge achievement testing. We use the Woodcock Johnson test of achievement and students typically arrive two or more years below grade level and leave having what we call close the gap. So they earn at least a year, sometimes two, sometimes three years of grade level by the time they leave in literacy across the board, but also in literacy. And so it's not that I'm just like expanding this definition of literacy and anything counts and it looks great in the classroom, but it's also translating to test scores. And so I became really interested in what that meant for me as as an educator, and then also what that might mean for me as a school leader. And as I became more interested in that, I, I decided to pursue a PhD in literacy education and have my area of research Just be trauma informed literacy. And yeah, I was just super curious what others were doing, and then also how I could make this a little bit more well known and accepted as a method of literacy instruction.
0: So I really love the fact that you are the practitioner and the researcher, and you're really trying to bring those two worlds together for so many people because a lot of times when teachers read research. You know, Our first response is, yeah, but I don't know what the reality is in the classroom, but you do. Yeah, I just wrote a piece
1: with some some friends in my trauma-informed network for um, National Council of Teachers of English, and the second author was a current sixth-grade English teacher, and it was just all practitioner-based. That, that's my goal, is to put tools in the hands of teachers.
0: And that is my goal as well. So thinking about trauma, trauma is something that has always been there, but it seems like the pandemic has really brought it into the light for so many more people. What do people need to know about trauma, especially in children? I think the pandemic brings to light the fact that trauma has has a very expansive
1: definition and trauma is subjective to individuals. So somebody might experience the anxiety of the day-to-day pandemic in concert with the isolation, and particularly I'm speaking of a student, you know, an imaginary student, and that might be really stressful for them. And to the point that they're always in high alert and something like that, an ongoing stressor, whether that that becomes debilitating in a way, the, the pandemic sheds light on the fact that it can really be anything that that causes trauma. And it's again, subjective to an individual. So they feel supported. Those stressors might not be as traumatizing as they would be for somebody who might be an only child or who might have either parents are working all the time. And that could be any socioeconomic class. And, and so the support system and personal factors contribute to whether trauma really has an impact or not, and whether stress becomes trauma. And so, it's important, I think, for teachers to realize that students who have experienced early and ongoing interpersonal traumas have maybe a different need in a way than students who who are experiencing this current ongoing stress. It's, it's trauma. It's just, again, I can't stop saying this word subjective because it's like we're experiencing trauma through the pandemic. And so it's important for us to recognize that it's universal. It's a human experience. It's something that can bring us together rather than say, make us see students as damaged because of their life experiences. And it's a buzzword I think right now, but also something that if we're not careful, it can have us pathologizing
0: students who live a different lifestyle. My husband sent me something the other day, own your brain, because we're, you know, Paranoid now about our health because we're getting old, and, and, and <laughs> brain is, and brain is one of the things that you know we're both yeah. paranoid about. And one of the points that it said was, you know, inflammation is obviously one of the things that damages your brain long term. And it said that the pandemic has really damaged a lot of people's brains because of the loneliness. Yeah. And, and his point was that loneliness in the pandemic actually equated to the damage that like 15 cigarettes smoking 15 cigarettes and drinking a bottle of vodka wow. per day and wow. uh, yeah per day and I was just thinking I was like ever that's a lot <laughs> yeah I mean that is an incredible lot of what I would consider damage mm-hmm. In a, in a way that like no one has really even thought of, like everyone yeah. has been like, yeah, we know you're lonely, but that's better than dying. Yeah. Um, and, and absolutely, of course, it yes. is. But I think being able to quantify the damage to people's brains in that way certainly makes it more real. Yeah. And just saying, yeah, I know that everyone's been bored and lonely, but. Yeah it really is damaging people's brains. Yeah. In the way in which
1: they're under really intense amounts of stress. Maybe they're having these interpersonal conflicts where they're being bullied, where they just aren't in a safe environment and they aren't learning because of that. I think the thing that I immediately turned to was, well, let's look at what happens to the brain when this stuff happens. It's, it's literally... Damaging the brain.
0: People who are in the schools doing the work, they see exactly what you just described, which is, you know, a kid can experience the same thing as someone else and it not affect them. Right. You know, but then you have children who, have endured something really horrible, and they emerge fairly intact. And then you have Mm -hmm. a kid who's just been sitting by themselves at home for months. And Mm so, you know, who am I to decide anything about any of those people? Right, right. Individualized, but I do think to the point of the asset view uh, of people, you know, and not having kind of this deficit medical lens on trauma is something that we do need to be talking about.
1: Yes. And I think regardless of your values and viewpoints, I believe that the the essence of the message here is that knowing what we know that about trauma, that it is universal, that You know, not everybody experiences it. Maybe not everybody experiences it the same, some more than others. What matters is how teachers are engaging with students. And what it comes back to is that relationship, building a relationship with students, having them making sure that they feel safe in your classroom and sanctioning whatever they choose to bring into the classroom.
0: You know, one of the things that all of this kind of relates back to me with the trauma, and I think we'll talk more about it, you know, with kids who've had trauma related to literacy. And Mm -hmm. so one of the people that I'm working with right now has a second grader. And she was just diagnosed with dyslexia last year, has a 504 plan Mm -hmm. and they're doing benchmark testing for winter. And it's so traumatic for this child Mm -hmm. that he starts getting anxious the week before testing. And, and it's something that unless you're seeing it, you wouldn't necessarily even recognize exist. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so many examples of the ways that a traditional literacy approach can traumatize students because it doesn't match with their needs as humans and it it just it ignores some of those some of those things like the fact that that child is extremely anxious and and yes they have a 504 but i don't know that much is going to change for them in their experience with that test. No. So yeah. that's the approach look, looking at it and saying well what what can we change to support any child who's who's just feeling super unsafe whether it's in school or at home or on the street or in the you know the locker room whatever
0: it is. Uh, I agree completely. I think that teachers have definitely experienced some trauma and even continue to experience it and when you look at what the teachers in Chicago you know they have mm-hmm basically said, we're not going back into classrooms until we know it's safe. And obviously, situations differ to different parts of the country. And some people have experienced more trauma than others. What are you hearing from teachers and how are they coping with their own trauma? Yeah,
1: again, that that piece of whether it's isolation or whether it's overwhelm, whether it's maybe feeling unsupported or feeling unappreciated, underpaid, all of the above just burnt out. That's what I'm seeing. Some people are doing great. I have my local school district. I live in this little um, condo community here. and I would say in like across the street, and it's it's not even a city block, it's like a walkway thing. I have two teachers. Next door, I have a teacher. There are, you know, three more teachers at the end. Like I see these people all the time. I'm very involved in the, in the what's going on. And then I'm also working with a local nonprofit to help support teachers in the community. And so I have, you know, finger on the pulse of what's going on in our, our local school and for the teachers, it's not that bad. I think some, again, some people have it a lot worse than others. And I think what it comes down to is that feeling supported or not and Alex Vanette wrote on her Instagram page she's um, her Instagram handle is the at unconditional learning and she wrote the book equity centered trauma informed education and it's you know it sits on my desk and I use it all the time and she's got that teacher well being in mind and you know what she's writing is that it's it's Not this cutesy self care, cutesy well being. It's not donuts. We talked about this before. It's not donuts in the break room. It's not a massage chair. Like those things are great. You don't have to take them away. But what teachers need is money, according to Alex, money, time, support, autonomy, and community care. And they, you know, making a meeting that's less about PLC data. And more about literally having coffee with your fellow teachers without an agenda. Or if you're taking that time to sit with your teachers, collaborating on really meaningful problems that you decide are important and being able to have a network that is, and I think a big word comes to mind, especially with my local community of folks who seem like they're doing better than what folks on other locations are doing potentially is feeling like you have friends in the building and otherwise i'm seeing on instagram i'm seeing people quit particularly female teachers of color are feeling very unsupported and maybe even pretty marginalized in their buildings and then you know the other thing i'm seeing that i really advocate is if you're not going to quit but you feel like quitting see a therapist And if you aren't going to quit and you don't feel like quitting and you you still are just going day to day and you feel great, see a therapist. (laughs)
0: That's that's it. Everybody needs a therapist. Um, Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I I think to your point about, you know, so many of the things that we have traditionally done to, quote, take care of teachers are totally inadequate. And so thinking about PLC time, you know, instead of telling me, okay, we need to be doing this. Yes, I get that. But then lessen the workload. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we need to walk away from there is with something that reduces stress and reduces workload because otherwise, you know, I have this fear and I keep saying I feel like we've got a tsunami coming next school year um, in many places where we've done a poor job of taking care and protecting people. And so their response is, I quit. I'd rather work at Walmart or I'd rather, you know, just do anything Mm -hmm. besides this because they they can't handle it. Mm -hmm.
1: It's literally overwhelming people's ability to cope. And that's, Herman is a renowned trauma uh, scholar, Judith Herman. She wrote a book in 1992. And one of the things she writes is that trauma is the an experience that overwhelms our ability to cope. And so, yes, I think teachers are experiencing trauma. And like you said, that workload has a lot to do with
0: it. Yeah, because we, we told parents in large part when we sent kids home that don't worry, when they come back, we'll catch them up. And so that's one of the things that I feel like is stressing people out is this idea of, okay, how do I catch them up? Uh, Because it's not easy. And especially when we keep doing this on again, off again, and no one really knows from one day to the next, what are they even doing? And so I think that makes it even more complicated. So we will see. One of the things that I read on your blog was the need for teachers to create boundaries. Why is this important? And how would you recommend teachers do this? So this is super related to what you were just saying. And I'm not
1: saying, again, I don't ever want to say that anything causes trauma. But when we're talking about on again, off again, online, at school, unpredictable, that's really linked to why boundaries are important for trauma-affected youth. Because when somebody experiences trauma, especially that early ongoing interpersonal trauma, maybe at the hand of adults or older siblings or cousins or something like that, or in school they might experience trauma, it is often pretty unpredictable. They may be rewarded for things that is not considered great behavior in the world at large. They might be scolded for doing something that was probably really well-intentioned their the reliability of their life is pretty up in the air in these situations where they experience this interpersonal trauma and so it's really important for teachers to understand that about these very trauma affected students because they they really would benefit from having explicit boundaries with their teachers and i'm not going to talk a whole lot about what I think that looks like, I'll just sum it up. It's this sort of providing clear upfront criteria for success and and defining what a teacher is in their life. And I would recommend folks to just browse this resource by Alex Vanette. It's on role clarity and boundaries for teachers And she writes that teachers may, you know, for instance, have trauma affected youth saying something like, you're my best friend. I have no one else. And believe it or not, that's not a good sign. It's not a sign that you're really trustworthy. It's not a sign that, you know, nobody else in their life is supporting them. It's a sign maybe that you have an issue with boundaries. And instead, you, when you get that feeling, you got to recognize if that feels good to you, that's a problem. It might feel good. Okay, you're a special person in this child's life. I shouldn't say that's a problem. But what's a problem is thinking that's true and not reaching out and seeing in reality who are the other adults in this child's life, whether it's somebody in their family, somebody in their community, somebody in the church, somebody maybe in their cheer squad, something like that, or in the school building. So what are the mental health resources in the school building? One thing I found recently in an interaction that I that I thought really summed up how a teacher can approach boundaries with students is a conversation that I had when I was co-teaching a master's class with teachers. And it was a, one of the uh, teachers in the class wrote this. She's an English teacher and she wrote, I usually take the time to share my role as the reader of their work. I talk about how it is my job to help students stay safe. So they need to know that if they write about something that shows me they are not safe, there are steps I may have to take. Those steps never include sharing a student's writing with other students, and if I needed to share it with other adults, it would only be on a need-to-know basis. I've had students write about current abuse in their home, and I ended up having to make a hotline call about what the student had written. I also will connect students with the school counselors if they're open up opening up about self-harm or wishing they weren't alive anymore. If a student writes about a bullying situation, I will find a time when I can speak to them one-on-one to support them in the steps the school takes to report bullying and provide space, time, and support for them to do so. While there's a chance a student might choose not to write about something, knowing those parameters more so it lets them know that I will believe them and I will privately do something to protect and support them if action needs to be taken. Oftentimes students will ask who's going to read this. And that is usually a good good indicator that they're thinking about how they want to self edit based on my response. And what I love about, so that's the end of um, this person's thoughts on on the boundary with students. But what I love about this is it kind of covers all the bases. It talks about all the different things that students might write about. Not everything, but some of the categories that students might write about. Abuse, bullying, self-harm, and makes it very clear up front what the teacher's role is and what their responsibility is. And also makes it very clear that the teacher has the student's best interest in mind. And so if a student feels the need to reach out and they don't really maybe know about the resources in the school, They don't necessarily want to, they don't know the school counselor personally, they know their teacher and they know, Hey, this is a safe space where I can share and I will get the help I need. And I was talking with my advisor on Friday about how I'm not saying as a language arts teacher that teachers need to be a therapist. I'm saying that teachers need to make it very clear what their role is related to students' trauma so that students feel comfortable sharing their life experiences in a a literacy environment in which literacy has the potential to help them make meaning and help them even recover from their trauma. But the teacher isn't going into that writing potentially, that, right? You know, if we're talking about students are writing about their trauma. The teacher isn't going into that writing and then saying, okay, well, let's work through your trauma. And the teacher is never being a trauma detective and saying, tell me what happened. Tell me more, share your life's hardest experiences. No, we're not saying that. What we're saying is create a safe space where if they would like to, they can. And then you, if you need to go beyond yourself and share that information with somebody else, then you should, and you must. And But the important part is the students understand what that looks like ahead of time.
0: And I think that's just so important because teachers can't take that burden mm-hmm. of what am I going to do about this child who's in distress? And you know, having been a high school English teacher who dealt with students who revealed in their writing, I'm suicidal mm-hmm. or I'm having suicidal thoughts. The first thing I did was, Oh, people who work with me, counselors, whomever, help me because I was not equipped to deal with that. I didn't have the skill set. I didn't have the bandwidth to mm-hmm. really deal with that. And, you know, as an elementary principal, I had children as young as third grade that were expressing suicidal Thoughts, and mm-hmm. so I think that knowing and and being explicit to teachers to say this is not on you, uh, mm-hmm. this is not your role, and I think that that relieves some of the stress. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though it's definitely stressful to deal with that, but making sure that it's part of a community of people that are helping kids because it's stressful enough what we're asking teachers to do already. Mm -hmm.
1: Yep. And I really like
0: the word network. It's a network. Absolutely. So as a former English teacher and self-professed literacy nerd, I think that teachers who are incorporating reading and writing into their classrooms obviously need to be both thoughtful, about how trauma might emerge, and I'm thinking about reading a book that could be triggering or writing something that really taps into something that they haven't processed yet, and also how they choose assignments or books that they use in the classroom. Any advice on how teachers can navigate this reading-writing piece with trauma in mind?
1: Yeah, for sure. A lot of the reading I've done recently and a lot of the work I'm doing in preparation for my dissertation has a lot to do with how teachers find their own balance between allowing students to be fully human in their classroom, which doesn't look like what we expect students to look like in school traditionally, and and where it becomes too much. So finding your comfort zone and I often say recently, and even for myself in the classroom, the, the place that's best for students might be a little bit beyond your comfort zone of what you're okay welcoming into the classroom, particularly if you're a white middle-class female, because we've been taught there's a certain identity kit. Husby at al., I can share that link to an article. Husby did some work with teachers that looked at, they were given some books on death and grief to bring into the classroom with pretty young children. And Husby and colleagues looked at how, why, and when are teachers bringing these books to their students? And one of the things they found was that the why they were bringing them often looked a little bit more like why they were reluctant to bring them to students. And so there was a recognition in this study that it's very important for students to be reading these books, especially when you've got students who've A lost somebody or B will lose somebody, loss, death, grief. Those are all really normal parts of life. And traditionally, humans have coped with grief in community. But the way things are right now, it's often students are are dealing with this stuff on their own. And so it's it's so sort of in a way a social justice issue. And so So when we're talking about what does it take, what do literacy teachers need to be aware of? My main message is that, What's best for students may not be comfortable for you. And so representing life's experiences in the literacy classroom often requires us to go beyond our comfort zone, but it's not something you should be doing alone. And so if you're going to bring in a book book on death and grief for kindergartners, be aware that you have resources in the school that you can connect with before you do so. Make sure other people know you're going to do it. And also not just making sure that, quote unquote, they're okay with it, because that's not necessarily what matters. What matters is that you know that if something happens, somebody is aware you're doing this and they're right there for you if you need them. And then also that your own emotions can emerge and that's okay. And you don't need to police that. And and it's really healthy for students to see teachers be emotional, not in a way where you're putting your stuff on them, but in a way where you're showing and, and modeling that emotional expression is appropriate in your classroom and you're not policing emotions, you're not saying, oh, we don't cry. Stop crying. It's okay. No, say, it's okay to cry. Let it go. Let it out. And then finally, I would just say, the other piece that's pretty uncomfortable for teachers and very understandable is that when you allow trauma, when you allow hardship to emerge in your classroom, it takes time. It takes a little bit more time than regular instruction. And so you don't want to be pushing past it in a hurry. And you don't want to be thinking in your mind, I've got pressure and time constraints that I need to meet. You need to put that stuff aside when you're, when you're talking one-on-one with a student or with the classroom and really in a community feeling things because they'll sense that you're feeling rushed and they'll sense a disingenuous reaction. If you push past that emergence of trauma without acknowledging it without sitting with it. And, and Elizabeth Dutro wrote a book called The Vulnerable Heart of Literacy. And she does a ton of work with literacy in trauma. And one of the things she emphasizes is that trauma is unpredictable in emergence when it's going to come up and in form. And so when we expect students, maybe we're reading trauma literature and we have students responding to the literature in a, in a rigid assignment, like maybe, for instance, a, a study I read had students witnessing a trauma testimony by writing a persuasive essay, and it didn't work. And the study was really shed a lot of light on the way that you can't, yes, we can, I think a lot of t- times teachers, we say, well, we can make anything fit with a standard. And that's sometimes true, but I think it's really important to be careful with that, and recognizing that trauma testimony will not necessarily take a rigid form and it might resist that and it might. And so I could, <laughs> I could go on and on, but but basically in a nutshell, trauma is unpredictable, trauma is uncomfortable, and you have resources to help you make it safe for students to have been affected by trauma in your classroom and to do some recovery in your classroom and feel supported and feel safe to just be who they are and let that trauma not be stigma, but let it be just a part of who they are and something that is not forbidden fruit in your classroom.
0: Yeah, I had several thoughts when you were saying all of that, because as a high school, former high school English teacher, we certainly you know had texts that talked about things that were Traumatic. And but you you talked about in a kindergarten Mm -hmm. class, you know, and some people might think, why in the world would you ever share that with a kindergarten class? But then sometimes we forget that children unfortunately die Uh in our classes and losing a parent or losing a teacher Mm -hmm. is something that we've always had to deal with, but at a greater rate in the past two years than Mm -hmm. we've ever seen before. And so there's always been that need to address that. And so I was really thinking letting students see your grief. And I, I remember at the elementary school where I was the principal, we had multiple children at our high school killed, and they were siblings to some of my students. And so the entire community, we really didn't understand, and it happened overnight. And so the news started spreading that morning. And so I literally had to go into classrooms and address classes. Because because, you know, I did not want them to hear about it from another student. And it was something that the entire community was was dealing with. And and it was so hard to deal with that. But I think letting kids see us grieve. It is part of setting that kind of healthy parameters for us just as human beings mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, that was hard. You know, I had teachers who had taught these children and, you know, and they heard it. And so I had to say, if you need to go outside, I'll watch your class because trauma has always been there. I just think that it's more on our minds right now because there have been so many deaths because of covid and we're talking about trauma you know from multiple events here but i think letting people and children especially see us as authentic human beings is a big step in teaching them how to process it themselves totally yep i agree So what are some of the other things that trauma-informed educators should be aware of or doing? And this is, you know,
1: my response to this question is very in line with what you just said. And basically, this thinking comes from more of that Dutro's work, that, that teachers can work to see their own hardships as valid for literacy instruction and rethink the rigid boundaries between personal and private, figuring out why do I feel like that's not appropriate for school? Why do I have walls up? And a lot of the times it comes from what what we have learned to value in our lives. And our values then translate into when a student might share something that feels inappropriate for school, for instance, maybe somebody expresses that they've been uh, not it's funny because these students might have these fears but they might not share them and you don't know that they have them until you allow them to share them for instance in a, in a different study there was a student who expressed that they were afraid of being raped because of stuff that had happened in their community and it was connected to what they were reading in a book somebody was kidnapped in the book and and the kid said well what if they're raped and and I'm afraid of being raped and the other students policed them and said, well, that's not appropriate for school. Like if we, and it was an out of school book club, but it was like, you're gonna get sent to the office. You're gonna get written up for that. And the, the uh, proctor of the book club in this out of school book club said, no, it's okay. We can talk about that here. And so when we make that little tiny shift that feels small, it's one sentence, it opens up a world of meaning for students and thinking about the decisions you have in those little moments of when a student says something, how do you listen? When a student writes something, how do you respond? And what are the consequences of choosing to quiet it and, you know, put sort of dampen the fire that could potentially come out of something like that? Or what if you stoke it? And what if you say, we're going to let that burn here because we want to make something from that. And we want to use all of life's experiences as potential for literacy engagement. And so it feels risky. It feels scary. And I will always say, ask for help. You know, make sure you've got friends in your school. Make sure you know the mental health practitioners in your cl- in your school and in your community. And always be reflecting on your own values and, and what the consequences of those values are for your students.
0: And I think our teachers have developed a lot of skills around, I I can deal with this in the classroom versus I can't. And So to some people, and especially if you don't work in schools, um, sometimes people say, well, you know, that's not appropriate for discussion in school because I don't want you to give my kid an idea that they didn't already have. And, And my response is most of the time kids are talking about that. Um, you know, between themselves. And yep. it's already out there whether we address it in class. Mm-hmm. And so if if something needs to be discussed as a class, I would much rather an adult who has the best interest of the children in the room mm-hmm. addresses it, than it not be addressed except for by children. Yeah. So I don't know if that makes any sense.
1: It but- does. It makes a lot of sense. And I'm just reading Paulo Freire right now and how you know, oftentimes teachers are seen as uh, depositors of knowledge in the students' minds and students come with nothing. Students have this stuff, like they have understanding about the world because they live in it. And and more so than ever, I think with inter- internet connectivity, students know what's going on in the world. And we want to make sure that, that they know then what to do with that. Yeah. And that's where we can help guide them and make something of it rather than, like you said, just letting them maybe go in the wrong direction with it.
0: You know, Zaretta Hammond is one of my favorite authors. And, you know, she talks about, you know, when we're coming out of this pandemic situation, you know, if we don't address what children learned while they were away from us, It's not like they stopped learning just because they were not with us in the school building. And so, you know, um, addressing what they learned is a step going forward. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I think that that kind of really reiterates the need for people to be aware of the trauma that kids have experienced and and also how we as teachers can proactively and effectively respond. Mm -hmm. Uh, which uh, in large part is do what you feel like you can do, uh, and it goes back to those boundaries, and then Mm -hmm. ask for help um, if you don't feel like you can. So Erin, thank you so much for being with me today. I appreciate what you're doing for teachers and students. Yeah, you're welcome.
1: Maybe we can link to my social media. I'm at BetraumaInformed on Instagram, which is where I share much of the Thinking that I'm doing while I'm doing my research and then uh, my website is traumainformedteachers.com where I'm not posting that often anymore right now. (laughs) I don't have a capacity for it, but there's a lot of cool stuff that are on both of those in both of those locations that address a lot of what we talked about
0: absolutely. And I will say I'm a fan of the blog. I don't uh, spend enough time on Instagram, but reading your blog post has really helped me think through my own response to much of this. So I highly encourage everyone to go check it out. So join us again for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast.